Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from a beautiful new venue here on the university campus. This is the recital hall of the Voxman Music Building, and it's very exciting for us to be here this evening. Pleasure to have you all with us in the room, and those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. This is the opening program of this year's season, and our topic is fracking and the Iowa Divide. In this three-part series on fracking, we'll be investigating this important and controversial form of energy production from as many angles as we can. What it is, what it offers in the way of energy security, what it may mean to employment and growth where it occurs, but also what worrisome or even dangerous side effects are states, communities, and individuals experiencing. It's a big topic, so we'll get right to it. And I have a wonderful group of uh, guests here in our first segment, and I'll introduce them now. Just to my left is Ty Priest, an associate professor in the University of Iowa Departments of History and Geography. Thank you for being here, nice Ty. To be here. Mm -hmm. And Bob Gibra is uh, next to Ty. Uh, Bob is the state geologist of Iowa. And at the far end, we have a piano professor at the University of Iowa School of Music, Alan Huckleberry. So thank you Thanks all for having. being here. Um, I think I'm going to start first with you, Ty. And I want to start with some very basic questions. Help us understand what fracking is and how it stands in relation to other kinds of energy um, production. OK, well, uh, fracking is a technological breakthrough that happened in this country uh, right around the turn of the century, year 2000. Uh, the industry will tell you they've been fracking for decades, and they have, technically. Uh, but this is a new kind of fracking uh, that came about from the marriage of hydraulic fracturing, is what, is what we know as fracturing, and horizontal drilling. Um, and uh, the kind of fracking they do is much different uh, from what they had done in the past. Hydraulic fracturing involves drilling a well, you know, usually a thousand feet or more into a horizontal uh, bed of shale or very tightly compacted sandstone. Um, in conventional drilling, like we've, been, we've done for 150 years, you drill a well, a vertical well, and uh, you strike oil and gas, and, and then it flows out as a result of natural pressure. Uh, fracking allows you to access oil and gas that doesn't flow under natural, natural pressure. Uh, it, it's often uh, embedded in the source rock, the shales, uh, that provide uh, oil and gas to more conventional reservoirs. Um, and so it involves pumping thousands of gallons of water, uh, most of the fracking fluid, more than 99% of fracking fluids are water, uh, with some chemicals uh, to make the water slick, uh, and uh, sand, which, mm. as we know, uh, as we'll find out, is, is mined in this region, uh, which is used to prop open the very fine grain, or very fine fractures, and it releases oil and gas. Mm -hmm. um, it started in the Barnett Shale, uh, you know, around Fort Worth, Texas in 2000, a company called Mitchell Energy uh, was the, you know, combined these technologies in a way that allowed them to uh, extract tremendous amounts of gas from the Barnett, uh, and it was originally used uh, to look for uh, other shales that have gas. Uh, and so uh, the industry, the technology and the industry migrated to uh, Pennsylvania, Marcellus Shale there, um, Louisiana, uh, Arkansas, Colorado. These are the states, West Virginia, where you, uh, you see fracking for natural gas mainly. Around um, 2007, uh, a company uh, called 
couple companies and uh, tried this in the Bakken formation in western North Dakota to see if they could extract not just gas but oil. Uh, they were successful. Um, and uh, then the, the fracking for oil then uh, followed in 2008 in uh, South Texas. And now uh, we're producing a lot of oil from fractured wells in West Texas, mm -hmm. Permian Basin. Mm -hmm. So those are the main regions where you're seeing oil and gas production from fracking. And the, the, the impact has been tremendous. Um, just to give you some numbers, uh, in 2005, we were producing 50 billion cubic feet a day of natural gas. Uh, this year, we're producing uh, over 90 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. So the increase of 40 billion cubic feet of, per day of natural gas is greater than um, Qatar, Canada, and Algeria combined. Uh, and they're three of the top 10 natural gas producers in the world. So just the increase in natural gas. Um, in uh, oil, we've gone from producing 5.1 million barrels a day to uh, in the middle of last year, well, production has come back down with the low oil prices. Uh, we're producing over 9 million barrels a day. And the increase is greater than seven of the top 10 oil producing countries in the mm. world. So we, the United States is now the large, again, the largest oil producer and the largest gas producer in the world. So if we think back to public discussion over the last many years, um, we need to be more energy independent. Is fracking one of the things that allows us to believe we're more energy independent? It gives us a significant measure of energy independence, but not full energy independence. Uh, in 2005, we were importing 60% of our oil. Um, we're pretty much, we're fully, almost self-sufficient natural gas, although we import a lot from Canada. Um, we were importing 60% of our oil, and now that's reversed. We're importing only 40% of our mm -hmm. oil. Mm -hmm. And that gives, uh, that's important geopolitically for the United States and its relations with Middle Eastern countries and with Russia and, sure. and uh, other parts of the world. Sure. Well, during the course of the program, we're going to be talking about some of the uh, downsides mm -hmm. as well. But uh, economically speaking, more employment with, uh, yeah. with the rise in fracking? Well, there's there, there are there are certainly downsides, and we hear a lot about them. We don't often hear about as much about the the upsides. Mm -hmm. We tend to take them for granted. Um, and you know, as I as I mentioned these, uh, it's important to understand that there are trade-offs. Mm -hmm. You know, between environmental quality and protection, economic benefit. Um, in 2012, the state of New York banned fracking. It was led by a lot of celebrities. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who had second homes in the Catskills, but, uh, th but that's beside the point. Uh, <laughs> gave rise to a new acronym, NIMSBY, not in my second backyard. Um, but uh, they, uh, there was a sign, there, the, Yoko Ono and her son Sean Lennon posted, a billboard, posted billboards around uh, New York City saying, imagine there's no fracking. Um, and, you know, I do imagine what, where would be today without fracking, and it kind of scares me. Um, and this is, the way I, this is the way I think about it. Uh, without fracking, oil and gas prices would be at least three times higher than they are today. Um, you know, and uh, you know, all the political and economic ramifications of that, we would probably still be in the recession that started in 2008. The fracking industry has been a huge generator of investment and jobs. Um, uh, we would uh, be producing uh, more, coal and more carbon dioxide 
uh, our CO2 emissions have declined by 15% since, since 2007. Our trade balance would probably be $200 billion a year more in the red. The dollar would be weaker. Um, the power of uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia and Middle Eastern monarchies would be stronger. Uh, our ability to uh, restrain Iran's nuclear ambitions uh, would be weaker. Uh, so there, you know, there is a, yeah. a lot of, uh, it, there's a huge impact. Uh, Iowa is, it, Iowans have benefited tremendously from fracking, mainly because we are such large energy consumers. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but on a per capita basis, Iowa ranks fifth in energy consumption in the state, in, in the United States. We, <laughs> on a per capita basis, we consume more than Texans do. Um, and, and consume a lot more than all the surrounding states. Mm -hmm. uh, mainly because we use natural gas a lot to heat our homes. 62% of Iowa homes are heated with natural gas, and another 13% with propane, the cost of which has, has mm -hmm. declined dramatically in the last yeah. 10 years. So, uh, And the uh, industry in Iowa has doubled its consumption of natural gas since fracking began. Mm -hmm. So there, there have been a lot of benefits. I'm not saying there's no downside to it, yeah. Um, yeah. but th that's kind of, we have to understand the trade-offs and we have to think about, think sure. about it from a lot of different perspectives. Sure. Um, now, if I understand correctly, and I'm gonna bring you in on this one too, Bob, um, we don't do fracking in Iowa, right? But we do have sand that is useful in the production of, of or in the, in the uh, process of removing <coughs> the yeah, oil and the yeah, natural the, gas. Uh, the, the northeast part of Iowa, Southeast Minnesota and Southwest Wisconsin, what geologists call the driftless area, because it wasn't really glaciated ever the way much of the upper Midwest was, also has these very old, four or 500 million year old sandstone layers, formations. They're right at the surface there. These rocks are made of sand grains that are, uh, were geologically, they went through the mill. <clears throat> they were eroded. They were transported a lot. They're very rounded. They're nothing but quartz, nothing but silica. Very hard, very round, and pretty well naturally sorted out. So the sizes of the particles are about right. That makes them quite perfect for the, the fracking industry. And I don't know, they've, they've looked at other places, but this is probably some of the best stuff in the country mm -hmm. uh, for the process. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell us about Iowa's issues related to fracking. What are the questions we're dealing with now in Northeast Iowa, yeah. but potentially other parts of Iowa too, related to this industry? Well, there's, there's a bunch. Um, first of all, when you do any kind of mining, it's not a pretty sight, mm -hmm. okay? We're used to a lot of near surface mining in Iowa. We call them quarries. There's limestone quarries already. There's two that, you know, within two miles of here that are very big, that built the university, Iowa City, Coralville, the interstates, all the rock that came out, you know, became aggregate concrete, built those. So, so in some ways, uh, uh, one of these frac sand mines is just like that. But there's a difference because of the demand and the pace of the mining that they do, it just moves fast. Mm -hmm. So the trucks may run a couple hundred a day, 24-7. And in that area, if you're familiar with that upper Mississippi mm -hmm. Valley, it's very pretty, the bluff country, cold water trout streams, 
a lot more forests than cornfields, and, and this rips it up. Yeah. And so, so that's a lot. Now, some of the environmental impacts, they're probably actually not as great as the ones that we don't regulate, which really is that landscape impact mm -hmm. in places that should we be doing this or not. Yeah. Uh, help me understand what you mean, places we don't regulate. Oh, well, you know, there, there are certain things that, um, that are regulated from an environmental point yeah. of view. How much water you use, yeah. where you discharge it, how you handle your dust, mm -hmm. runoff from a mine yeah. site. There are things that fall under regulation, yes. but a lot of things don't terribly right. well. Right, meaning things like the new traffic to the area, um, all of the impacts on communities nearby, and then just the aesthetic changes that, exactly. that result. Exactly, yeah. That's not, there's not a, a rule in the books yeah. that says you can, you can do that. Right. Um, a couple of the counties in northeast Iowa put moratoriums on mm -hmm. frac sand mining mm -hmm. and have written regulations that if you read between the lines, it kind of says, don't mine here, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And they didn't do this thoughtlessly. They thought about it hard because it's jobs, but they also looked north to Wisconsin, and there are some counties in Wisconsin where over a period of a year or two only, 15, 20 mines opened up and it really overwhelmed things. Mm -hmm. And folks up there looked at that and went, let's do a timeout mm -hmm. and figure mm -hmm. out what's coming in. Mm -hmm. Not that we want to say no to the possibility of yeah. a mining one, but yeah. 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 Could we talk for just a second too, one of the issues I know you deal with is water quality. And we've, we've talked about all the water that, that is pushed into, um, into a fracking operation. But um, what about the wastewater that comes from these areas? Not just here in Iowa, but what are some of the concerns with the, the water that comes back up after the, the drilling happens? There are two big environmental issues with fracking, aside from just the disruptiveness of it. You know, mining can be disruptive. You know, a, a drilling operation in a sort of a densely populated area like Pennsylvania is, yeah. it, it, you know, is very disruptive, very loud. Uh, you've got dust, you've got uh, emissions, toxic emissions. Um, the issues are methane leakage mm -hmm. and then uh, the, the disposal of what it, the water that flows back that you put into frac, yeah. that's called flow back water, and then the produced water. So when you produce oil and gas, you don't just produce oil and gas, you produce water, and it's usually very briny, salty, and you can't just dump that into the river, mm. and you have to figure out something to do with it. Yeah. And this is one of the. This is probably the big issue. Mm. Um, you know, they they had some municipal treatment plants in Pennsylvania that couldn't treat this stuff when they started putting it into the water. Mm. Um, a lot of states and fracking is really regulated at the state level. I mean, there are some federal laws that that uh, control some of the environmental uh, emissions and, and water issues and some exemptions from federal laws that the, that the oil industry has been able to uh, obtain. Um, but usually they do two one of two things with the, all the water that comes back out of the well. They re-inject it, mm. you know, into, re-inject it back in the earth and uh, deep into the earth, usually sometimes old, old wells, and, um, or they recycle it, they treat it, and reuse it. Um, now, the recent 
the, one of the most alarming things about the, the reinjection of the wastewater is in places like Oklahoma, where just last week we had a 5.6 magnitude earthquake that was felt in Des Moines. Mm -hmm. um, and so they are, they are injecting huge amounts of water in areas that, ha that have faults in them. Maybe Bob can talk a little bit more about this, mm -hmm. and it lubricates the faults, and you get, they've had hundreds of earthquakes in Oklahoma. Following this last earth earthquake, the, the Oklahoma regulator uh, has put a moratorium on new well injections. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, that is probably the biggest issue with, with actual fracking pro and drilling process. If, if you want to say just, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say that you know the the industry there, there's a lot of uh, focus on the kinds of chemicals they inject and add to the water <clears throat> and pump into the ground. Yeah. Because the companies that do that don't like to talk about what they are. Yeah. But frankly, the water that comes out, that that briny water that's been living down there tooth and nail with oil and natural gas for 300 million years is a lot worse and the chemicals they're putting. Yeah. So it's how you handle, how you handle that wastewater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's the big one. People, get, people don't like the idea of you know, fracturing the rock way down, and there's worries that you know, the chemicals will come up into aquifers. That'll never happen. Um, the, the well casing might leak or fail, but that could happen with any oil and gas well. The big issues are not so much below ground, and the industry is pretty good at cementing and casing wells. Not always, as you saw with the Deepwater Horizon and some, some other, you know, other couple wells in early in Pennsylvania. But the issue is above ground. Yeah. What happens with all this? I mean, because there are some very toxic, volatile, um, hydrocar volatile mm -hmm. aromatic hydrocarbons, mm -hmm. benzenes and things like that that come out of the well. And so, you know, uh, we need good regula regulation mm -hmm. to, to deal with it. So one thing I wanted to add, Everyone should understand, and I don't think everyone does this, does understand this, that fracking is not a subset of the oil and gas industry in the United States. It is the oil and gas industry in the United States. Mm -hmm. Ninety percent of all new wells are fracked today. Mm. So when you hear calls to ban fracking, what you're really hearing is a call to stop the oil and gas industry. Now, some people would like that to happen, um, but uh, you really, we really need to think through the implications of this. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I wish we could keep going with, with this segment, but we're, we're going to turn to a, a slightly a different side of all of this now. And I'd like to introduce again Alan Huckleberry, who kindly has come to play a piece of music for us that has a very interesting origin, and maybe you'll explain yeah. it. Yeah. Um, well, first, I'm sort of the odd duck here. I, Not <laughs> at all. Not Even at though all. this is kind of my building, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, not personally, but. Um, a couple months ago, Joan asked me if I would play on this, this event and uh, told me what it was about and uh, left it basically up to me what to play, but gave as an example uh, Stromness by Peter Maxwell Davies that I'll be playing here in a second. And I had, I had never heard of the piece before, and uh, so I uh, sort of polled my uh, Facebook friends, uh, who are uh, a lot of musicians from around the world, and I said, hey, I've been asked to do this. Do you have any idea of uh, any pieces that would fit sort of this, this mold? And um, I don't know, within 10 minutes, there was Peter Maxwell Davis, Peter Maxwell Davis. <laughs> and then Joan chimed in and said, see? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, 
and then the second piece in the, that I'll be playing in the, in the third segment, a friend of mine, uh, we recorded this a, um, a couple of years ago, uh, the composer uh, sent me a private message and was like, um, I don't want to be presumptuous, but you are here playing a piece. That, and I had no idea, actually, that this would fit. And we'll talk more about that in the third segment. Uh, Peter Maxwell Davis, uh, British conductor, composer, um, all-around uh, amazing guy, I would say, uh, who uh, actually just passed away uh, in March at the age of 81, uh, was also a big environmentalist. And uh, he was made aware of um, a planned mine for uranium uh, that was supposed to uh, be uh, built on the island of Orkney. And that would have had dramatic implications, especially on the town of Stromness. Uh, and this is why the piece is called Farewell to Stromness. And uh, they had a music festival there, and they asked him to come and uh, write uh, or play this piece. And it's a set, actually, of uh, cabaret-style songs. And uh, they, they did come and play it. And the piece you will hear is, one of the, is an interlude between uh, two of the songs. And there were huge protests against uh, this mine. And lo and behold, they were successful, and the uranium uh, mine was never uh, built. So. Right. So thank you. Take your place at the piano. And, and so this piece is Farewell to Stromness by Peter Maxwell Davies.
So what better ending to this first segment? Uh, I want to say thank you very much to Ty Priest, to Bob Libra, and of course to Alan Huckleberry. Uh, please keep your seats. We'll be continuing in just a moment with the next segment of this World Canvas program. Uh, all World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, on iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr for UI International Programs. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you in the next segment. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Voxman Music Building. This is the beautiful new Red Recital Hall, and we're pleased to be here tonight, pleased to have so many with us here in the audience. This is part two of our three-part series called Fracking and the Iowa Divide. Our guests in this segment will focus on the local effects of fracking and discuss the controversies and opposition, as well as adverse environmental and social impacts. And we'll learn about the fractivists who are working to raise public consciousness. Uh, so I'd like to introduce our guests. Uh, just next to me is Mitch Browse, who's an assistant planner with the Johnson County Planning Development and Sustainability Office. Thanks for being here, Mitch. Thank you. Uh -huh. Next to him is Bodhi Vasi, associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of Sociology. Thank you for being here. Mm -hmm. And Taylor Borby is at the far end. He's a writer and an environmental activist, and uh, he'll be with us in this segment and also in the final segment tonight. So, Mitch, I'd like to begin with you, if you don't mind. And I understand you've been working on a, a major economic impact project that concerns Northeast Iowa and, you know, all the various things we talked about in the first segment, and then also a much more focused look on that particular part of our state. Um, give us an idea of what you've been discovering. So what we were tasked to do is, um, Winnesheet County actually had a moratorium on frac sand mining um, throughout the county, and so um, what they intended to do was have some research done to try to figure out what are the impacts where frac sand mining to locate um, in their county. Okay. Um, so they tasked us to try to examine the uh, what if, what will happen if, if frac sand mining does locate, if they let it, or um, how they could properly regulate it to um, help mitigate any of the negative effects. Yeah, yeah, and this was a prolonged study. This was for a number of months. You were looking at all the. Yep, yeah, yeah, we worked yeah. over about nine months throughout yeah. a school year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, what what did you find? What what are the uh, potential impacts? Well, I think interestingly, um, the most important or at least biggest impact directly to the county um, was the potential impact to the road system. Um, it's not something we immediately think about when we think about mining and what it might do to uh, our local economy and our local um, environment. But um, as was discussed briefly in our first segment, um, mining for frac sand is very intense. Um, they're trying to extract and move as much product as they can as possible. Um, in most cases, well, all cases, um, the product is used elsewhere. Um, so they have to transport the the product from um, wherever they're able to mine it and find it to to a rail hub to put on rail and send the, um, across the country in North Dakota to South and Texas or other places. Um, and so the the number of trucks that would be added to roads is that, uh, actually very substantial. And in many cases, the sand is located in areas where there aren't heavy roads that are built to withstand that kind of pressure. Um, so to give a little bit of an example, a passenger vehicle um, puts down uh, what's called a .004, so four, four ten thousandths of an easel, which is just a standard unit that's used to measure the impact of a vehicle on a road. Um, a loaded frac sand truck 
um, creates about two easels, easels per trip. Um, so that's about 5,000 times the impact on a road system. And so what we found is that if, if the, the trucking activity from a mine um, goes unregulated, um, it's going to first decline the lifetime of a road. Um, when counties or when cities build roads, they design them to withstand a certain level of traffic um, over a certain number of years. And if we're adding these massive amounts of traffic to a road, um, in some cases they're going to lose up to, to half the lifetime of a road, um, which will require them to replace that prior to when they were planning. Um, additionally, um, once they do have to replace these roads or if they decide they need to improve them, they're going to have to build the road to a higher standard than the traffic that comes just from their residents. Mm -hmm. um, and so that surprisingly ended up being one of the larger impacts or at least one of the larger quantifiable impacts mm -hmm. that we looked into. Meaning that if a, if a county um, wanted to go forward, they would have to be prepared to levy whatever taxes it would take to pay for this new road structure. And um, one of the things I understand, maybe one or all of you can weigh in on this, the, there's a potential for uh, very heavy frac sand mining for a period of time, but then that area may be depleted. And then there is no longer an economic benefit from having. So you have to be prepared. To, to build the roads and keep paying for them even after the fracking, frac sand operation may have left. Yeah, exactly, and, and one of the things that's interesting too about this is that frac sand is only demanded when oil is demanded, and so the, the need to mine is directly related to oil prices, um, which is something that are somewhat out of, well, entirely out of a local, local, locality's control. Um, so there is some potential where they're going to be mining really heavy at one time, and then six months later, the demand's no longer there, so they kind of leave their mines just vacant. Right. And the jobs that were once there are no longer there during that downtime. Yeah. Um, so just related to this area you researched, what was the feedback from the, uh, the, the governing body in that county? Um, they, they were... Um, surprisingly progressive about how they approach this, or proactive, I guess is a better word. Um, they, they themselves had done an, an intense amount of research before we even started. Um, and I believe, and I haven't had a chance to see it, that they did implement some regulations, um, you know, kind of based on some of the impacts we were able to find, um, so they can help um, avoid any of these un, un, unneeded or unnecessary um, impacts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and now you're working here in Johnson County. Is there any, uh, do we have frac sand around here? Not we, that we really do Not that you um, know. No. I'm not a geologist. <laughs> yeah. um, if it is, yeah. I'm, it's, not, it's not economically <laughs> yeah. feasible to mine. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. We'll come back to you a little later. Bodhi, uh, you're a sociologist, and I understand you're, you're studying some of the, the um, anti-fracking action that that is occurring, is that through the internet or is that you're just studying the methods of the anti-fracking groups? Sure, yeah, um, so I've been researching um, the local mobilizations against fracking. Um, there are um, a few hundred um, cities and municipalities that have adopted bans against fracking uh, in the last few years. Uh, they're mostly concentrated in the north, uh, east, uh, and uh, the west coast. Um, but there are also uh, a few uh, cases in uh, 
in the Colorado, in, uh, uh, in the, the Midwest as well. Um, and um, the interesting thing is that this, this growing opposition has emerged um, um, in, in opposition to this, what's called uh, this uh, fracking revolution. But uh, according to the activists, this is more of a counter-revolution than a revolution because a genuine revolution means that you replace a system with a new system, an old system with a new system. And uh, I don't think we really replaced the, uh, the old fossil fuel system. So in that sense, it's more of uh, maintaining the same system of the fossil fuels. Um, so many activists are opposing uh, fracking, not only because of the local uh, consequences, um, as they were discussed earlier, but also because of the global consequences, in particular with, uh, with the uh, climate change and the, uh, um, the um, um, it's, it's true that uh, fracking and, and natural gas is cleaner than coal, and, and, um, but, but it, it's also true that uh, because of cheaper uh, ga gas prices, we have seen a new record in terms of the number of miles driven this year, the, the last year. We see more, more driving, we see more um, uh, what, what activists describe as, as waste, and, uh, and um, it's also debatable uh, how fast we're moving towards uh, um, um, renewable energy. So, um, as you've been studying the anti-fracking groups, do you find that, that renewable energy is what many of those people are pushing for? Things like solar, things like wind power. Um, the, the drive is to get away from fossil fuels and also fracking. Yeah, I think many activists would um, not only say no to fracking, but they would say yes to renewables. So there's um, um, not just a, a simple kind of NIMBY story, not in my backyard. Uh, it's, it's also uh, please in my backyard, or in some cases, you know, a please in anybody's backyard, um, and, um, and bring um, you know, sort of a genuine transition to renewable energy. Um, so a lot of the, act, the, the activists were involved in, in this anti-fracking activism, also involved in um, clean energy activism. So mm -hmm. uh, that's, I think, one of the major drivers. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would just add to this, the other, the other argument that is kind of interesting to consider is the argument of uh, jobs that we heard earlier, uh, which is true that uh, fracking has, has contributed a, a significant number of jobs to the economy. Um, at the same time, um, we don't know what would have happened without fracking. I don't necessarily think that, that we, we would have seen an economic crisis. Um, even with fracking, uh, the solar industry nowadays employs more people than the oil and gas industries combined. Um, in the, my, uh, the, the extraction. Um, so um, I think that's, that's, um, that's significant. Um, and also, uh, just to keep in mind that uh, countries that have the lowest oil prices are not necessarily the countries that we want to aspire to be like mm -hmm. Venezuela or Nigeria or uh, Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the countries that have higher energy prices, some of the highest energy prices, like Denmark, Norway, uh, Sweden, we'd recognize this, Netherlands, we'd recognize this advanced economies and, and successful economies. Sure. Um, what are industry responses to the activism around them? What, what, what do we see from industry? Well, there has been a, a, a pretty significant uh, counter-mobilization to the, those uh, local, um, local activism. Um, the industry, well, first of all, the activists um, were um, uh, able to mobilize um, through the use of um, uh, various cultural products, uh, music, uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, some of the musicians and, and actors 
uh, were involved in this local activism, particularly in the Northeast. Um, also documentaries, Gasland is a well-known documentary that got a lot of attention, and then Gasland 2, which uh, follows up and, and talks about um, the need to, to transition to renewable energy. Um, in response to this, the industry has created its own documentaries. Um, Frack Nation uh, is one of them, um, and um, another one escapes me right now, um, and uh, has attempted to, uh, to, to um, organize also at the grassroots, so, so stimulate uh, and, and, and point out to the fact that fracking is good for the local economies. Um, and uh, more recently, and, and I would say probably more um, maybe uh, worrying, is that there's uh, been a, uh, an attempt to uh, reverse some of those local bans. So now states such as Texas and Oklahoma and, and Colorado uh, have bans against local bans. So you cannot adopt uh, a local ban. Uh, it doesn't, um, so, so uh, that's, I, I would say, somewhat concerning mm -hmm. because um, most people would, would, um, would probably uh, argue that it's important to let the local communities decide whether or not they want fracking. Mm -hmm. Well, let's uh, take this to a kind of a real personal level with you, uh, Taylor. You are from North Dakota. Yes. And you're a writer, you're an environment, environmental action, uh, activist, and um, you have written this book, Fracture, which some people may have seen here in our, our lobby, a series of essays, poems, uh, prose pieces about fracking and its impact. Um, tell us what you have seen in your own area, in your own state, in terms of the immense growth in this. I think we all are aware that mm -hmm. North Dakota suddenly had this, you know, huge range of jobs available and new houses being built like crazy and so on. It seemed like, wow, North Dakota struck it rich. But what does it look like now on sure. the ground? Well, you all now know where North Dakota is, for instance. <laughs> uh, this used to not be the case. Uh, I, I grew up in coal country in North Dakota. My entire upbringing was supported by coal. Um, so I'm not just a crunchy granola activist out of pure logical reasons. My parents somehow produced one um, based on bread and butter paid for by lignite coal. Uh, I grew up with the Missouri River as my main artery. Um, this part of North Dakota, if I were to take you through it like I took my 11-year-old nephew, uh, just in early August, it looks nothing like what I grew up with. A town, for instance, Watford City, when I was in high school about a decade ago, was about 1,200 or 1,500 people, is now the nearest estimate is over 10,000. So what does that mean? It means every two years, your town doubles in size. You need more nurses, you need more social workers, you need more teachers, you need a larger grocery store, you need more road infrastructure. Things start expanding. You can also see my home state from outer space at night. Uh, it gives off more light pollution than Minneapolis-St. Paul, but it's from the burning of natural gas. It's the planet's largest bonfire, we would say. Um, Buttes, my nephew, who's 11, had an interesting observation. We were driving around, and his job was to call out, there's another flare, Uncle Taylor, which you hear it several dozen times when you're up in that part of the world. It gets a little unnerving. Uh, but we came around in the Badlands, which are these beautiful 65 million years of Earth's work, um, bentonite, clay, um, beautiful. I would say they're more beautiful than the Grand Canyon, though we can arm wrestle about that later. Um, but we came around the corner, and one of these buttes was completely leveled, and a pump jack was placed on it. And my nephew Logan said, Uncle Taylor, that butte isn't coming back. 
It's a profound statement by an 11-year-old. Um, the world I knew is completely twisted upside down. Um, just this year, Duke has issued a study. Uh, the Missouri River now has radioactive material in it. Um, so Iowa, we might say, is bookended now by two of the most polluted rivers outside the Minnesota River in Minnesota. Um, we're surrounded by pollution. Um, and we might very well pollute it even farther uh, with this massive pipeline. Um, you know, pipeline spills have happened um, in my home state in September of 2013. No major news source covered this. It was not on the cover of the New York Times. The country's largest inland oil spill happened near Tioga, North Dakota, which is sort of northwest central part of the state. Um, a pipeline was struck by lightning is now what is confirmed in 865,000 200 gallons of Bakken oil spilled. The pipeline was uh, owned by Tesoro. Tesoro thought a bubble was in the pipeline. So when bubbles are in pipelines, what do we do? We ramp up the pressure, which means more oil flows through. Originally, Tesoro said the hole was only the size of about a quarter, which meant it would take eight or nine months of leakage for this to be discovered. I don't know about you, but any farmers I know don't miss certain swaths of their farmland for eight or nine months at a time. When Steve Jensen went out into his farmland, he discovered that there was oil on his tractor tires. 865,000 gallons, to give you an idea, is seven football fields worth of oil. Um, the pipeline that will come from my home state nearby there, uh, nearby Tioga Stanley, which will cross Missouri River twice, is a 30-inch in diameter pipe through Iowa. Um, it's carrying capacity, though we hear it in barrels, it's better to hear it this way. It will be 24 million gallons of oil flowing through Iowa every day. Mathematicians where I teach and go to school at Iowa State University, I, my degrees are in literature, so math is not my strong suit. Um, if the pipeline leaks, breaks for an hour, to give you an idea of how much oil we will be inundated with, it will be a million gallons. When a pipeline leaked a year ago in January in Glendive, Montana, which is along the Yellowstone River, um, the pipeline, which was nine inches in diameter, leaked. And in about an hour to the hour and a half it took us to close it down, it spilled about 40,000 gallons. Um, Ty had brought up benzene as a known product in the oil from the Bakken. It's a known cancer-causing agent. Um, the town of Glendive could not drink its water for well over a week. As much as a month later, fish as far down as the Missouri River, where the Yellowstone River connects in, um, to the Missouri in North Dakota, had benzene in their muscle tissue. This, of course, has flowed into the Missouri River as well. Um, things we're not talking about. Most everyone here is white. All of us on this panel that you will hear from tonight are white. Right now in North Dakota, if you haven't been following, um, one of the largest towns that's cropped up in North Dakota in the last few months is uh, the Sacred Stone Spirit Camp. Roughly about 5,000 Native American peoples are gathered right now in an attempt to stop this pipeline. Um, a week ago on Wednesday, um, I'm part of the Dirty 30 with Kathy up there in the back and Miriam here. Yes, we've got friends here. Um, I was the first one arrested um, that, that day. Um, that's an incredible experience. It's sort of, I'm still recovering. Um, go to trial on Thursday if you want to come to Boone. Um, 
but, but part of this is um, Iowans are, for lack of a better term, raising a little hell. But in North Dakota, we must acknowledge brown-skinned people have been camping out for five months. This is radical protest. Who in here would give up work for five months you know, or longer? We're in the long haul right now. They're preparing for winter to be setting up there. I never thought this would happen in my home state. My home state was settled by passive-aggressive Norwegians and Germans from Russia. I am both of those things, so I can say this. Um, but two, to know what's happening in this area. North Dakota, if you remember, in the Cold War, if, it, if we had seceded, we would have been the third strongest nuclear nation on the planet. There's still 150 or about 200 active Minutemen missile silos in North Dakota. This tremor that just happened, the 5.6 earthquake in Oklahoma that woke me up the other weekend, if it activates the right fault, Catherine Miles, who's in the anthology out there, will be releasing a book next year. If it activates the right fault, the Northern Great Plains, the amount of survivors we will be able to register from this massive earthquake will be a few dozen. Because we don't build our buildings here, why would we to withstand earthquakes? I mean, there, there's so much to talk about here in so little time, I guess. But that's just a few changes. Um, both geologically speaking, in an area I know, um, environmentally, but also crime rates have increased. Sex trafficking is huge. Drug trafficking as well. Byproducts that aren't reflected in your lower-priced gallon of gas that you and I apparently depend upon. Um, so you as an activist, we've heard you say what, what you are protesting against. Um, do you accept the earlier um, um, statement that if we were not doing fracking, that fracking mm -hmm. is energy production in, in the United mm -hmm. States now, um, are, are you and the people you are uh, associated with okay with huge energy prices if there's no more fracking? Or are you looking for some sort of middle ground, more care about um, the environment, more regulations, more local control, more input from farmers whose lands may be impacted. What would your best outcome be if you mm -hmm. could choose one? Well, it would be better design buildings, even this one, which is brand new. Sorry, University of Iowa, it's not the best. Um, it would be more buildings like at Seattle University, the Bullet Center, B-U-L-L-I-T-T, -T, is the world's first living building. It's designed completely within its bioregion. It recycles rainwater on site. When I was there and you press the tap, you're getting recycled rainwater. It put forth new legislation. I stayed in the country's first completely solar-powered hotel, and where is it? It's not San Francisco, it's not Arizona, it's Oberlin, Ohio, which gets as many sunny days as Seattle. So here's my challenge, Iowa City. What's your excuse? You get more sun than Seattle. To me, it would be a world where we live in more right relationship. And I say this as someone who's not yet 30, um, because the habitability of the planet we live on is drawn into question. Just last week, Sandra Steingraber and I were having, uh, if you don't know this woman, she's the living Rachel Carson. She's the one who has successfully helped ban fracking in New York State. Um, at the outset, we have 20 years to get out of, off of carbon if we want to still have options. Um, so to entertain this, my biggest goal in life is to see the coal-fired power plant that paid for um, bread and butter 
to be put out of business because each day that passes on this type of industry, this fuel, is the noose is tightening around my neck. And that is where we're heading right now. Tell us a little bit, any of you, about uh, what you see nationally um, regarding policies. We're in a political season right now. We all know that very well. And um, the parties seem to be um, in, in opposition uh, to so many things, including future energy paths and so on. Um, and yet I know there are many people who aren't satisfied with what either party is proposing right now. What do you see as something positive, something progressive, something that, that can help us make the next best step? What are some of those good examples around the country? Perhaps you, if you don't have one, we'll skip to somebody who does. But, <laughs> but are there, you know, you've mentioned a couple of things here, buildings built in a certain way, using uh, recycled rainwater and all of that. This is all great um, wind and, and solar power. Odie, are you aware of, of some really smart things people are doing in parts of the country that, that can find sort of a, at least a near-term compromise? Sure. Um, people in, in different uh, parts of the country, in this country as well as around the world, have been um, doing all sorts of interesting things with, um, uh, from, from uh, uh, increasing energy efficiency to the kind of uh, places where you can actually, it's a zero waste, facility or uh, uh, zero energy building. Um, and um, I, I think it's kind of, um, um, I, I think from my perspective, it's kind of uh, exciting to see that uh, we are at a point where, as I said, the number of jobs that are in the solar industry uh, is right now you know, higher than oil and gas industry, which many people would, would find surprising because um, the solar industry is producing less than 1% of the electricity then uh, the oil and gas industry is producing um, a lot of, like, at least 33% of the electricity comes from natural gas nowadays, which is as much as from the electricity that comes from coal. So, um, so because solar is less efficient and, and, and less, uh, the, the energy density that is in, in solar uh, is uh, lower than the energy density in, in gas or um, um, oil, um, much lower, you need more jobs to create the same amount of energy. So, um, so in that sense, I think that more people are starting to realize that it's not necessarily um, a, you know, a trade-off between renewables and, um, and, and uh, uh, you know, job creation and, and uh, economic growth. Uh, a recent study that came out, for instance, found out that um, um, with the number of jobs declining in the coal industry, um, it is estimated that um, um, the solar industry being, was, has been the, the fastest growing uh, energy uh, sector and uh, it can easily absorb the number of people who would be laid off from the coal industry and um, you, would, you would have to train a lot of those people obviously but um, they would make on average up to 10% 10 10 more than, than what they make in the coal industry except for the people at the top management because people at the top in the fossil fuel uh, make a lot of money. Um, so it's hard to, to, uh, to uh, match that. Uh, but um, there are, uh, there, I think there, there are a lot of signs that um, you know, there is um, uh, uh, local kind of um, uh, green, uh, uh, green shoots, if you want to call them, or, uh, and, and, uh, and, and um, um, places where people, um, the, the local economy is, is benefiting. On the other side, I, I do have to say that the, the, the um, uh, 
fracking uh, issue is pretty complex because there are uh, environmental benefits as well from um, you know, reducing, um, um, so instead of using coal, if you use uh, um, natural gas, uh, it is cleaner. Also, uh, natural gas works better uh, as a backup for renewables. It's easier to switch on and off the uh, natural gas power plant than it is to switch on uh, a coal power plant or uh, uh, obviously a nuclear power plant, which is very difficult uh, to, to, uh, to turn off. Wow. Well, uh, it's, it's a lot to take in, a lot to think about, but I'm, I'm so happy you could all share this with us. Mitch Browse and Bodhi Vasi and Taylor Abrorby. And um, thank you for being with us in this segment. We'll see you in the next segment as well. And um, I want to say thank you to you for listening to this uh, portion of World Canvas. World Canvas is produced by International Programs. It's a monthly program, and we'll be holding most of those programs here in this building. We hope you can join us uh, next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from the Recital Hall in the beautiful new Voxman Music Building here in the campus of the university. And we're happy to have you join us for part three in this series on fracking and the Iowa Divide. We've spent the first two segments of our program discussing fracking, contemplating as fully as we can everything from the business, energy, political and regulatory angles to the local impact on economies, culture, social interaction and landscapes that may suffer or be lost entirely. In the next few minutes, we're going to take a reflective and highly personal journey through literature and music, uh, expressive avenues employed by writers, composers, and performers who have something to say about what they see and feel in the world, something they can say best through their art. Um, I'm sorry to say, those of you with the program know that we had planned to have another guest this evening, Margaret Stratton, a photographer who's done stunning work documenting transitions around the world, but illness has kept her away from our program tonight. So we will continue with our other guests, and we're in very good hands with Alan Huckleberry, a professor of music at the School of Music here at the University of Iowa, Scott Conklin, associate professor also in the School of Music and violinist, as you can see, and Taylor Brory is a writer and environmental activist who's joining us as well. So thanks to all of you. Uh, if those of you who've seen the second uh, portion of this program have already met Taylor Borby, um, and I've invited you to stay with us in this one to talk a little bit more about how you feel writing, you are a writer and an environmental activist, how you feel that, that writing and uh, telling the stories of what's going on in the world around us really helps us sort of comprehend um, things that are sometimes very diffuse and hard to grasp. Well, writing is bedrock, right? For those of you who uh, grew up in a Christian context, what's the phrase? Uh, in the beginning was the word, right? Uh, so it's bedrock for how we understand our lives. Uh, my other specialty is in the Bakken oil boom. I have taught myself how hydraulic fracking works um, through reading books, of all things, and newspaper articles. Part of this, though, I think what we're getting at through art is Science gives us information, but art gives us a vehicle to understand and feel that information. Science doesn't necessarily tell us what to do, but art, literature, music give us a way of understanding to see what we might face, to imagine different possibilities, to imagine where we've been and where we might be going. Uh, art is bedrock. We read poems at baptisms and funerals and weddings, so why in larger society, are we not turning to poems to help us think, well, my goodness, can a poem, a poem help stop a pipeline? 
I believe that powerful verse can shift our understanding of the world. And I would love to share a piece from the book. Um, and I'll see you at the end of it, and you can tell me a bit of how you're feeling. This is the piece that formally begins this brick of a book. It's called Seduction. It's 318 words. So here we go, Seduction by Mary Heather Noble. It's a bit like adolescence, all this newfound attention that you think you understand. And the young man sitting on your mother's flowered couch is polite and respectful in a way that she'd sworn had gone extinct, talking about your future and security and the wealth of opportunities to come. And though you barely even know him, you can't help but feel a little taken with his outsider accent, his pressed polo shirt with the company logo over his heart, the way he folds his long fingers around your mother's chipped coffee mug as the steam from the brew rises and dances around his lips, which keep moving and assuring you that it will be safe. And think of the potential of this place. He uses noble words like exploration and independence and speaks of recovery in a way that means returning to normal or a healthy state of being, as if the way that you've been living here is neither of these things. He speaks of recovery as in returning something to its rightful owner, which is you and your family. Of course you want what's yours. You'll remember those moving lips when the trucks come rumbling in hour after hour again and again, and the midnight light from the drill pad trespasses through your drawn bedroom curtains, the clanging and pounding invading the silence of your room. You'll remember those promises as you try to ignore the chemical veil and swallow the anxiety of what could be seeping into your well. Of course you want what's yours, but you won't know what they're taking when you unlock the gate and let them in, forcing and drilling, injecting God knows what into God knows where. And you'll think you're doing it for your future, think you're doing this out of love. But what do you know of love except for your mother's palm olive hands and the dance of the willows before a storm, a clean glass of water, the crescendo of cicada in the afternoon, the smell of wildflower dew. You'll be fooled by the softness of what they promise in the beginning, the finesse, but shocked by the unexpected violence of a frack. There's a persistent sting to innocence lost, a trace of diesel in the air. So you're the editor of this compilation, Fracture. Uh, when did you begin to pull together all these writers? Yes, so this, this was a, a rapid project for those of you who are in the book industry. Um, from the announcement of uh, submissions, which was November of 2015, uh, 2014, we closed submissions June of 2015, so about six months later, and the galleys were ready by that August. Um, the book hit bookshelves this past February, um, so about a little over a year and a half from idea and inception to completion. It's the country's first uh, creative writing anthology on hydraulic fracking. Uh, <laughs> there are over 50 authors in this book. 
um, which represent 26 states as a way to highlight that fracking doesn't just happen in North Dakota, Oklahoma, Texas, Pennsylvania, but that byproducts are felt in Wisconsin, in Iowa, uh, out in California, um, out with rail terminals in the Northwest. Um, it's, a, it's a way to help us see what brings us together, which might very well be the fossil fuel industry. Would you say that most of these essays are very personal? Um, uh, you know, what someone is, is living through in their own life, their own... Uh... Sure, I mean, I, some are, but um, you know, good literature is also imaginative literature. There's actually fiction in here, but the fiction is far more conservative than uh, the reality of many of the essays in, in here. Um, much of this work is heavily researched, but not in a way that we might think of academics doing their research. It's a way to get information to us, but in a sideways sort of understanding. Uh, a good poem can slip in sideways and stick with you a little bit longer than a 25-page academic paper might. You know? So uh, much of it comes from a personal interest, uh, but much of it is seeking to expand outside of one's own self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what kind of response have you gotten to the book? Well, um, you know, the book has been well received. It's been adopted in college courses. Um, a week after it was released in February, we went into our second printing, which was quite exciting. Um, on an individual level, of course, I get, you know, I have a wonderful file called um, uh, Notes from Those Who Would Seek to Tear Me Down. You know, um, so, uh, uh, you know, those wonderful emails you get that are, are good to uh, read after a little bit of a Lutheran Kool-Aid, I guess, you know. Uh, so, so, but largely it's, um, it's coming to warm and receptive audiences like this. Um, we did go to North Dakota, my home state, and audiences were largely receptive. There's something to reading a piece of fiction and saying, well, it's fiction. People sort of put down their guard at that point, even though you might be getting something across that's a bit more radical than in a story I might share. Well, like so many things, it's the personal story that someone remembers, the terribly sad um, photo of the three-year-old child who washed up onto, mm -hmm. the, onto the beach um, as, as an Assyrian family was um, looking for safe shelter. People remember that image even though they may not read the long complicated stories about Syria. So when we see what happens in Flint, Michigan, and we see a whole community mm -hmm. flattened because of... of uh, Environmental contamination. Catastrophe, yeah, catastrophe. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, perhaps a book like this and some of the writings help us pay a little more attention to, to what we're... we're we kind of wonder what's out there, but we don't actually take the time to investigate it sometimes. I, I hope you have good luck with this well, thank you. book. I think it's a terrific uh, investment of time and heart. Thank you, John. So, yeah. So uh, let me turn now to our two musicians, uh, because you have a real treat for us, I know. A piece you're going to be playing here. Uh, tell us the story. Well, we're playing a piece that we recorded as the Voxman, the old Voxman School of Music building was being destroyed, it was in evacuation mode. It's very strange that we're playing this here in our brand new Voxman School of Music building here at the opening, but we were in evacuation mode and we had to stick these tracks for an album called Biolinguistics American Voices that we both played on. And the piece is by Ching Chu Hu, who is an Iowa City native and a graduate of City High School and he is currently the Richard Lucier Endowed Chair at Denison University, where he's 
professor of composition. He's also chair of the music department. So he's a busy, busy man, and his pieces are being played all around the world. And so the piece that we're playing is called Snow Ash. And he sent, sent along some notes, and I think it really captures his reflections and, and kind of puts you into the mind of the composer really beautifully. Summer 2003, Banff. As fires spread out of control in Alberta, roads to Banff close. The Canadian Rockies hide between dense gray smoke. Yet up in the Columbia ice field of Jasper National Park, old snow coaches continue to bring people up to the Athabasca Glacier, which is melting every year and whose water flows into the Pacific, Atlantic, and Arctic oceans. A mining company literally decapitates Sulphur Mountain for its raw materials. I have come to do a residency at Leighton Studios Banff Center for the Arts, and I am awestruck by the beauty of the Canadian Rockies, as well as the destructive force of man and nature. Some days the skies are cerulean blue, other days bring a shroud of smoke and large gray snowflakes of ash. I can still recall the burning smell in the air and the feeling that, fire, that the fires are at once nearby and far away. Coincidentally, Banff loses power at the same time the eastern part of North America is experiencing a massive blackout. All the while, the animals remain calm, tame, and only 10 feet away from my window. Snow Ash, which is from a larger work entitled Glaciers Red, Vistas Veiled, represents my various sensory experiences that summer as man and nature collided and obscured my view. And the composer's name again is? Ching Chu Hu. Great. Well, please go ahead and right. get settled. We look forward to it.
Well, we've had a wonderful evening uh, this evening. I'm, I'm so glad you could join us for this program. Very grateful to hear this beautiful music and have art as a living part of this program tonight. Thank you so much, Taylor Brorby, and uh, good luck with all of your future endeavors. And Scott Conklin, really, really beautiful. Alan Huckleberry, thank you for your work. Um, and thank you, School of Music, for allowing us to use this beautiful space. So uh, that's the third part and final part of tonight's program on fracking, the Iowa Divide. You'll be able to watch this if you care to share it with anybody on YouTube in just a couple of weeks when we have it up. But uh, that's the end of tonight's program. We hope you'll join us next time we're in Iowa City. The next two programs we're doing in October are out of town, but we'll be back here on November 17th, and we hope you'll join us for that program. So I'm Joan Kerr for International Programs. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Good night.